If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today, we are going to have a somber conversation, but it is a wildly important one, and I am so honored to bring the guests that we have today. You are going to hear from Tara Tang. She is an embodiment coach who works in the intersections of spirituality and sexuality. Tara helps people find their way back to their bodies, overcome shame, and dismantle purity culture in a way that is in alignment with their values and beliefs so they can build a healthy sexual ethic and thrive in freedom and wholeness. Hi, Tara. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I think we are all really overwhelmed by the news. Today we are specifically talking about the murders of eight Asian women at mm-hmm. the massage parlors in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And um I actually haven't been updated recently. It is eight women that are dead. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Um I well there okay, I think there's it was seven women and there are a couple of people of other ethnicities that were caught in the crossfire as well. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. But obviously, we all know from the reporting that the target mm-hmm. was the women the target working was, in the massage parlors. The target was women working. Yes. Um, and from my understanding, it's not clear. And I honestly don't think it matters whether this was a massage parlor that was offering sex work or if it was simply a spa. I don't think it matters because what happened regardless was atrocious. And what happened to these women and, and everyone that was caught in the crossfire here should never, ever, ever have happened. Of course, absolutely. And at the same time, I know that it's so important to actually highlight that reality because I know that it's not confirmed, even though I, we've, I think I've seen the Yelp reviews that do mm. heavily imply that a lot of yes. white church-going men were reviewing the sort of happy endings they were getting at these particular parlors. So it's yes. like- you know, we don't know what's factual yet or not, but we do have that as, you know, Mm -hmm. evidence that, you know, could prove to be substantial. But Mm -hmm. I know the topic is substantial because I've had a lot of conversations recently in my private life about the treatment of sex workers Mm -hmm. and how stigmatized it's been. And even watching a program, um, 
I think I was watching like a Dateline or something like that from Mm -hmm. maybe five, six years ago. Mm. And they referred to a, uh, someone as just a prostitute, Mm. just a runaway. And that was so telling. I know. And it harkens back to my whole childhood. Like I just, I remember so vividly women or people in the sex industry being classified as other, as Mm -hmm. less than, and Mm -hmm. that word just. Mm -hmm. And even the reframing of the word from prostitute to Mm -hmm. sex worker, obviously is something that sex workers and their allies like us are advocating for, because Mm -hmm. that again shows that this is legitimate work and these people deserve to be protected as as much as anyone else is right and obviously that's a very nuanced conversation absolutely i'll give a trigger warning right off the top too like i i want to have a no holds barred conversation here so Mm -hmm. we are going to be addressing all the different elements and nuance it's going to be about violence it's going to be about sex work and assault and trauma so just a heads up for all of that. And Tara, would you mind telling us, because you really blew my mind uh, just learning more about you, exactly mm. and precisely how you are at the intersection of everything that is important mm. in this conversation at the same dang time. <laughs> I know, all in what wrapped up in one person. So I'm a biracial Asian woman. Um, my father was born and raised in Singapore. My grandfather fled China. So I'm first generation on my dad's side. Um, I spent the last 10 years working with sexually exploited women, with women in the sex trade, um, all across Southeast Asia, all across Canada. I worked in Parliament Hill. I helped amend the criminal code twice um, to protect victims of sexual exploitation here in Canada. Um, I was named Canada's Woman of the Year. I have a medal from Queen Elizabeth for my human rights work because this is what I have worked on for so long, protecting vulnerable women and children and um, gender minorities and racial minorities from gender-based violence, from sexual exploitation, from trafficking, from male-dominated violence most of the time, quite honestly, if we're going to call a spade a spade. I'm also the daughter of a Southern Baptist pastor and a survivor of purity culture. (laughs) And so when we are talking about all the contributing factors that are swirling around this particular issue, I am right in the middle of it. And now I work full-time as an embodiment coach. So like you said, I help people come back to our bodies to reclaim the fullness of our humanity in a way that looks at our dignity and our wholeness and the liberation of every part of who we are. And we can't have that conversation about liberation until we talk about the injustice and the body-based oppression that we live in that are the barriers for us to access embodiment. Mm -hmm. And right now at the forefront of our conversation is the way that we, we discriminate the terrorism the prejudice, the racism, the violence that is wielded upon people solely because of the way that their bodies look and the social hierarchy that we place people in because of their bodies. And so that's the conversation that we're going to dive deeper in today. And I want to I want to, if I can ask anything, I don't, I I know that there's going to be so many people who are going to be listening to it and we all come from so many different intersections. And I just ask that you, you lay your guard down 
can we lay our defenses down and see one another in our humanity? I don't, I want us to take our team jerseys off because it's not about that. I don't care about left versus right. I don't care about your political ideologies or your leanings. Like there's space for us to have that nuanced conversation. But in order for us to do that, we need to see one another in our humanity. Thank you. Very, very beautiful. And that's the entire spirit of God is gray and and Mm -hmm. all I care about building in this space. And um, that's so much of what I see this digging in of people's heels, this determination Mm. to remain ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't need you to answer why that is existing within people, but do you have a theory as to why it's triggering for people or incomprehensible for people. What makes people not want to have this conversation so desperately? Yeah, because we all want to see ourselves as good people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even when you hear the way that people and the family of this shooter, this murderer described him and the family, that they're good Christian people. That's what I heard people describing them as, good Christian people, because we all want to see ourselves as that. We don't want to see ourselves as perpetuating racism. We don't want to see ourselves as perpetuating misogyny. We don't want to see ourselves, and you can go down the line, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, all of it, because every injustice that we face in the world starts with the body, Mm. every single one starts with the body. This is why this, the intersections of embodiment and justice cannot be ignored. And so we don't want to see ourselves that way. I mean, I remember this time, well, not quite this time last year, we've been having this conversation, let's be honest, collectively for generations. But um, after the murder of George Floyd, we were having a lot of conversations, most of us, hopefully in our world about racism and the way that we perpetuate these things. And I remember on numerous occasions, I was having conversations with people very close to me, like in my family, in my friend's circle, people that I didn't think we had to debate racism over, quite honestly. And they got very heated. I remember standing, one of them standing up and walking away from the table that we were both sitting at and saying, I'm not racist. Are you calling me racist? And I said, I'm saying we're all racist mm-hmm. because we have grown up in a system that was built on racism. This is an undeniable fact. There was a time when we had to to say that, you know, women were considered persons, for example. We had to go all the way back to Britain to say, because Canada said no at one point in time. We had to go all the way back to Britain to say women are persons. Like, this is the structure that we live in. Racism is no, no exception. Misogyny is no exception. So we have all grown up in a culture where racism and misogyny and all these other things are swirling around. And it's kind of like asking a, a frog asking a fish to say, what is water? Like, we don't even know. We can't even recognize it. It's so normalized. It's in the air that we breathe. It's the water that we are swimming in, right? So, of course, when we have grown up in that kind of environment, even if you are a good Christian person, even if you're just a good person or you want to see yourself as a good person, you aim to be a good person, we all have to do this inner work of dismantling these things that we have absorbed from our culture. And that's where the conversation has to start. If we're starting with a place of like, hey, Asian women were just shot, targeted and killed because of the fetishization of Asian women, which is the intersections of racism and misogyny. You can't sit there and say, well, well, no, racism wasn't a factor. 
You can't sit there and say, these things weren't a factor. I'm not racist. These things aren't, these don't things, things don't exist. If you're starting the conversation like that, we're, we're never going to move forward. We're never going to get anywhere because we have to sit there and say, okay, where, where do I need to dismantle these things within me? Mm-hmm. That's where we start. Where do I need to start dismantling these things within me? Where have I centered whiteness? Where have I centered normativity? Where have I centered myself to the expense of other people? That other people's lives are being treated as disposable to uphold the system of hierarchy, of patriarchy, of dominance, of power and control. Because that's really the conversation that we're having right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel when I was asleep, this is why I actually love the terminology of wokeness, because I know it's become this like, liberal demonized Mm. terminology but I'm like no when I was asleep I used to say I just want a world where I can't see color I used to say I can't see color and I know that we as white people will see that as a really generous thing like hey Mm. we just don't want you to be treated any differently but Mm -hmm. what people don't understand is that we have planted trees that Mm. have root rot these seeds are rotten. So any fruit that is growing off these trees, you can find one good apple and, Mm -hmm. and then we have a shooting like this and you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. look, rotted fruit. That thing needs to be completely torn up Mm -hmm. and looked at and, and something brand new needs to be planted in its place. Yes. And also for anyone that's in denial, I'm like, okay, name me nine movies where an Asian woman was the lead in the movie and it wasn't a thing that she was Asian. Like there's right. no such thing. We don't live in a post-racial society at all. And and you can see it in Hollywood. You can see it in politics. Name mm-hmm. one Asian president. Name, you know, it's just like, right. and these things too are also recent history. Yes. There are pictures of Black people needing to use different water fountains. Mm-hmm. That is not long ago. Mm-hmm. And we've only had a black president very, very recently. Right. And then the Asian internment camps. Do you know right. what year that was? That was recent as hell. Yeah. My, um, so my ex-husband, um, I'm now a single mom, but my ex-husband, his family were sent to the Japanese internment camps. Wow. So they are my family because I married into that family. It's, it's that recent. It's, it's my And my own grandmother, um, you know, she was a child in Singapore during World War II. She remembers cutting her hair short, binding her chest because soldiers would come and they would rape young girls. She remembers being pulled out of school because boys got to go to school and girls did not. Yeah. Right. And even as recent as a couple days ago, you know, she was telling us and I I love her dearly. And she's just a wonderful, strong, resilient woman was was perpetuating the misogyny and saying that, like, the man is the head of the house. And so he must eat before everybody else, because these are these structural cultural things. And so this is what I'm saying, where it's like, yes, my own grandmother is a wonderful person and yet still has absorbed some of these ideas of patriarchy and misogyny and control. Yeah, there you go. And that's a beautiful example. Like we wouldn't point a finger and call her a misogynist, but you would point and be like, okay, this is an example of how ingrained misogyny is. But this idea that you are perpetuating and upholding 
is misogynist, yeah. right? And I, in the last couple of days, I and my, and many other good friends of mine in the Asian American community have been speaking out about anti-Asian racism. We've been speaking out about hate crimes. We've been sharing our experiences as Asian women who have faced and dealt with fetishization our whole entire lives. And not only have we been met with intimidation, not only have we been met with complete and total dismissal, we've been met with complete and total gaslighting. You know, we've had people come up to the, us saying that they are they are good people and that this just doesn't exist. This just doesn't exist. We're just wrong. It's so much to the point that people have gotten aggressive towards us. We have received hate mail and we're literally sitting there saying like, you are proving our point. Yeah. <laughs> You're proving our point. We are speaking up and saying that like, this is a problem. I'm sharing with you real life stories as well as statistics, like lived evidence and statistics to explain why this is a problem. And you are doubling down in your behavior and then coming at us aggressively with intimidation, with gaslighting, which is a perpetuation of this injustice and oppression. And then actually going to the point of threatening violence to us mm. for speaking out against the violence. Do you not see that this is a problem? Uh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Again, just I sometimes laugh so I don't cry. It's absurd. Right. Um, okay. No, I was just going to say, and th this is the thing, right? You know, I I've had people tell me that they don't see Asians as, Asian women as women of color or people of color, right? Because, and this, this is why, in one sense, I was speaking with my best friend last night, who is also an Asian woman, and she was saying, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because we've been silent for too long. And it, I hate that it has had to come to this. I hate that it is, that this, that, that, that these women have had to, suffer who have had their lives stolen from them our siblings our asian siblings have had their lives stolen from them at the hands of a hateful person who saw them as the the target and we're we're going to go into that in a little bit more about why this even happened because i think these contributing factors are so incredibly important um but for, for many of us, people are saying, we're glad that we're actually at least finally having this conversation because Asians have been treated as the model minority for so long, which is quite honestly a myth, right? You, you bring us in and there it was politically strategized to treat, to see Asian people as less, friend, less threatening because you then benefited off of our exploitation and our cheap labor. You needed to put our bodies in the line of violence so that you didn't have to do that which is why we built the railroad. We did all these things. We took the jobs that nobody else wanted because they were dirty and they were dangerous. We put our bodies in the line of danger historically. And, and you did this in a way that, oh, we're not as threatening as other racial groups, right? So we benefit in a sense from our proximity to whiteness, but we're not treated as equal. We're treated as disposable. We're treated as cheap labor. We're treated as playthings. And it's this complex pace because for many of us who are the children of immigrants or the children of refugees, because there are a lot of Asian people in North America who are, who are refugees. And we come here 
wanting to have a better life, often fleeing situations other places in the world where the United States has gone into countries we have had to flee as refugees. We come here now seeking a better life, leaving a situation that was perpetuated from, from the United States, quite ironically. And the reason why you, you have a lot of Asian parents pushing children to become professionals, right? We, they push us to be high achievers. They push us to be doctors, lawyers, to be, to be as high as we can, to hope that we will no longer be in the line of violence. That's why our parents do this. They push us to be overachievers. They push us to be doctors. They push us to be lawyers. They push us to be pharmacists. It's become a trope now at this point. And it's so that maybe you will see us as human now. Maybe you will see us as not threatening. And yet, unfortunately, the experience as an Asian woman is that it's very hard to be seen not as some sex object, not as some plaything. We're always treated as that. Asian women are the most fetishized and sexually exploited people group on the planet. Fact. Fact. We are really? facts. We are the most trafficked people group on the planet. Really? We're the most oh my fetishized people group on the planet. I think people forget how big Asia is as well, too, and how diverse it is. And again, this feeds into the racism and the stereotype. We have deep, beautiful, rich, diverse cultures. We're not all just one. It's not pan-Asia. We're not all the same, but that's what, this is why representation is so important. This is why when we say representation matters and these stereotypes do harm is because you're feeding into these Orientalist tropes and you're not really seeing me in the fullness of my humanity because you see me just as like the nerdy Asian or the hot Asian girl. And then either way, you're just objectifying me. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yes. Right? And that in this conversation that we're talking about with the fallout from the, the shooting that recently happened in Atlanta, the shooting spree, we have to have that conversation about the fetishization of Asian women as a contributing factor. And we have to talk about the fact that for both of us, and, and for me especially, as also the daughter of a Baptist pastor, and the shooter was the son of a Baptist pastor, this is violence on my own community, but that is also perpetuated by my own community. Mm. Okay, yes. So let's tackle this beast from all of the angles that I see mm. applicable. Um, because we have purity culture, fetishization, mm -hmm sex work mm -hmm. um what else am i forgetting obviously racism, racism. classism white yeah. nationalism white terrorism yes okay take your pick <laughs> I know. Mm, what a fun little bag <laughs> oh my gosh what a nightmare nightmare mm. bag okay so i definitely started the conversation on god is gray from the angle of um purity culture yeah and then i had a couple slides that are like <laughs> you're doing this wrong you're centering yourself in the story but right. anyway i i did feel bad but at the same time i was like well i can only speak from this one angle really mm. um and that's misogyny patriarchal church mm. values and i that ridiculous um police chief who made that statement oh yeah he had a bad day he had a he bad, had bad like, day i can't even but i have a bad day i have a bath yeah right i and ate a pizza <laughs> right and so like maybe this is this is a great opportunity to talk about how we talk about men managing their emotions 
Like all Hold of these us, layers. Yeah. Oh my right? goodness. Yeah. All of these layers. Let's teach proper skills of emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, as an embodiment coach, and this is the, the way that I view my lens is like, you have been taught that your emotions are too much men and women and everybody in, in between on the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Men have been taught that it's weak to show their emotions. It's too feminine to show their emotions, which again, feeds into the misogyny because anything feminine is emasculating to a man, even though men have masculinity, women have masculinity, men have femininity, women have femininity and everybody in between. And so we have demonized emotions and taught men that they need to shut it down, be a man, don't cry, which I think is wildly inappropriate. And also even the data goes back and says that like men actually die earlier than women because one of the contributing factors is because they don't cry because crying is a detox for your body. And if you don't do that, your body isn't able to release expressing your human emotions is part of your humanity. It is part of being embodied. It is part of the full expression of who you are. When we shut that down for people, it has devastating effects. It is deadly to ourselves. It is deadly to others as we are witnessing right now. So men have been taught to shut down their emotions because it is feminine and that's misogyny. Women have been taught to shut down their emotions because then they're crazy <laughs> and we're hysterical, <laughs> and which is also misogyny. And quite honestly, women have been institutionalized for that in the past Mm -hmm. so we fear that so we learn as well to shut down and suppress our emotions out of an act of survival because we still have that we know that the new science is showing us that these things trauma is passed down intergenerationally through the body and so ingrained in our dna are these patterns of survival where men have been taught to shut down their emotions women have been shot to shut down emotions and then we're all dying and we're killing each other (laughs) as a result I know it's, yeah, you're hitting so many nails on the head, 100%. And it's really, I was going to say, it's really striking that the whole argument is like, this was a good Christian boy. He was a good Christian boy. boy. He just had a bad day. I was looking every time I drive by like a church, cause they have outdoor mm. services now. And I hear worship songs that I used to hear. I'm doing so much inner work to, I, I've already forgiven. I've definitely mm. moved out of the like rage and hate phase. Right. I'm definitely, you know, still holding people's feet to the fire, still holding yeah. problematic values accountable, but I don't have that like rage that I used to. Right. But when I drive by a church, I was just noticing in my body because I'm obsessed with the practice of embodiment and I yes, love to talk same. to you about it more, but just noticing that all my, you know, I just like clam up like this in my car and like turn mm-hmm. up the music. So it's louder trauma. Uh, Yeah. And I was like, babe, like, wow, notice this about yourself. Like what's going on girl, like with my body. And I was like, you know what though, that's justified because I know people are getting hurt in there, but that is an unsafe space for people's body. And I, I worry for them. I I get scared. It's like seeing something traumatic happening to other people. And maybe that's presupposing a lot of things, but like, that's just my experience. Mm -hmm. That said, when we have this whole argument of, good Christian boy Mm. in my body, in my experience, I'm like, yeah, that could be a very dangerous person. It's true. So can we unpack why being a good Christian boy in the Baptist church is actually a detriment to 
society. Uh huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's it's absolutely terrifying, and I oh, I don't want to say mm, I don't want to say white men. See, here's the thing my my <laughs> brain and my body are are conflicting right now because my brain wants to say white men aren't dangerous, and I believe that they're not inherently dangerous. But my body goes, girl, run, girl, <laughs> run, run. Well, I saw a TikTok right? that the girl was art, like she was just saying, like, we're saying not all men, like men are yeah. attacking and being like, not all men, not all men. But it's like, but we don't know which man is dangerous yeah. until the dangerous thing happens. Yeah. So you kind of do just have to have this awareness at all times. Yeah. And that's not expecting the worst of people, but that just is like. The rape mm-hmm. statistic is 97%. In North America, the rape statistic is one in three in Canada. One Wait, in ninety-seven percent, right? Of people will be raped. Ninety-seven percent of women have experienced this. Ninety-seven percent, right? In Sorry, Canada, you're the, blowing my mind. In Canada, the statistic is one in three. I mean, I know from talking to friends that percentage works out. Exactly. Right. And so this is exactly the point. When I have a conversation with my friends, almost every single one, no, not even almost every single woman that I speak to either has been a victim of sexual assault or knows a victim of sexual assault. But the wild thing is that men know nobody. Men have never known a single other man who has perpetuated sexual violence on another single human being. None of them. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. So this is what I mean. This is the hard conversations that we have to have. It is hard. It is uncomfortable. We said that at the beginning of the discussion. That's why I'm asking you to lay your defenses down. It is hard. Yeah. Because we then have to do that internal reflection to go, oh, shit. Where have I done harm? And I'll answer that too from my perspective because something I've loved learning about is men's sexuality and Peggy yeah. Ornstein's book, Men and Sex, is incredible, or Boys and Sex rather, is incredible. Mm. She interviews like hundreds of uh, prepubescent adolescent boys. And, you know, one thing is that men don't always want to have sex, but we as women have been conditioned and men have been conditioned with this false mm-hmm. narrative. Mm-hmm. Guys just want to bang. Like they could come mm-hmm. home from their mom's funeral and they'll mm-hmm. still be down if you just like Im- touch their crotch. They're just randy all the time. They can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. It's so untrue on so many levels. And I want to take a minute to explore this for a second. Because um, mm-hmm. again, yes, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Baptist church. I grew up in purity culture. I'm the daughter of a Baptist pastor. So like I grew up my whole life hearing people say like, men are the head. Men are the head of the home. They are the leaders. They are ordained by God to be the leaders. And they are in control of everything except their own sexual urges. Oh, Oh, make it make sense. Oh, I'm sorry, girl. Make it make sense. Cause it is not, it does not make sense. It does not make sense. When I was newly wed 
I went to a Bible study where these older, um, not older, but like women who had been married for 10, 15, 20 years were mentoring young women in their marriages, right? And they just wanted to support us. We had like little babies and we were newly wed and, you know, all the things that you would expect from a typical church culture, church community in this kind of space. And literally we sat on the couch and one of them told me sometimes you know he's tired he comes home from work he just even if you're not feeling it you just gotta like take one for the team and i'm looking at her like excuse me just let him penetrate my body and just take one for the team because men have needs i mean for for anyone listening too that that is not uncommon that is the normal mainstream (laughs) script. It's like literally preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning. This is mainstream. Currently. Mainstream. I even this morning was listening to a pastor uh, preaching over Zoom on their to their church and say they're preaching out of Ephesians 5. And again, this is the first Sunday after the Atlanta shooting. This was to an Asian American church. We did not address, this pastor did not address for one second, the Asian women who were slain did not address for one second, but took the time to say women have to submit to their husbands and men, you ought to love your wives as you love your own body and said that men had to sacrifice. So when they come home, you got to clean, put on the apron on. I know it looks real cute were the words that were said. I know the apron looks real cute and you got to go cook. And maybe maybe she's on her phone, but you still have to sacrifice and you have to do it. And I'm sitting here being like, love your wives as you love your own body. I don't disagree with that. Great. Yes, absolutely do that. Yes, sacrifice for us. I want you, if you're going to sacrifice anything, sacrifice your male privilege. (laughs) If you're going to sacrifice, if you're going to love me like you love your own body, care about the violence that is happening to me. What are you doing to stop the violence that is happening to my body? What are you doing to make sure that your boys aren't killing us in the streets? We just want to walk home safe at night. Mm. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want you to, this pastor was saying like, make sure that she gets a glass of water, like feed her, nourish her, take care of her. I can get my own damn glass of water. Thank you very much. Tell your boys to stop killing me. Mm. That's yeah. what I need right now. You want to step up and you want to love me as you love your own body. Step like step up. We said, yeah. oh, this is what Jesus did. Jesus sacrificed. Jesus gave of his own body. Yes. Like step up then Jesus did give of his own body. Put your body in between me and the oppressor. Mm. Put your body in between me and the oppressor because I just want to get home at the end of the night. Yeah. I just want to walk through a parkade and not have to have my keys and my fingers like Wolverine. I want to just not have to carry pepper spray. I just want to not have to have my friend on FaceTime to make sure that I survive to get home to sleep in my own bed at night. This is this this is the culture that we're talking about. Women are just trying to live. That's it. So, what about purity culture? Yeah. Had these women lose their lives in Atlanta? Mm. Yeah. And so, okay. So as an embodiment coach, the majority of the people that I work with, not everybody, I work with people from all different backgrounds. And a lot of the people that I work with are not from the faith community at all. They have no religious affiliation, but the majority of the people that I work with are actually working to dismantle purity culture and come back into their own bodies uh, in a way that is alignment with their values, the way that is healing from a religious trauma. And 
what I see all the time is this shame cycle that people get stuck in, this swirling shame cycle because of the messages that they have absorbed because of purity culture. We were taught total abstinence, abstinence only education most of the time, those of us in this culture, in this community. Mm -hmm. um, if you got any appropriate comprehensive sex education, like amazing, I'm so glad, but most of us were just taught sex is reserved for marriage and heterosexual marriage as well um and and that that was pretty much it like don't masturbate don't look at pornography don't even look at another woman do you remember the book from the like early 2000s of every man's battle Ugh, remember yes, that book? yes yes yeah, yes i remember yes. reading it reading the young man's version reading the workbook because ironically like i wanted to talk about sex because it is a part of who i am as a human being i got zero access so the only books that i got access that i was able to talk about sex and sexuality were these deeply purity culture books um and i remember in like the first chapter or the intro chapter, like the opening sequence of the book, they're talking about driving down the road. Do you remember this? And there's this woman who is jogging. She's just out for a run. She oh, just no. wants I'm to do is this, is this triggering anything in you? Yes. What? Do you remember it now? No, I don't. I'm scared. So, right? Your body is already like trauma, <laughs> trauma. I'm like, is she jogging at night? Oh my God. It wasn't at night. She was just rock. She's just jogging. Just, just jogging down the street. And he was so overcome with lust at her body because she was just driving down the street. He learned this strategy of bouncing his eyes. And so the author then teaches everyone who's reading it to learn how to, when they see a woman, to bounce their eyes so that they don't look at her, so they then don't lust after her. And I get it in the sense that I'm like, at least you're sort of taking responsibility because we've been saying this whole time that like purity culture will often say that, you know, cover up cover up your shoulders because men will then like be overcome with lust because the clavicle is just so incredibly sexy <laughs> that you will not be, you will just, you will, you will be compulsively needing to rape this woman because her shoulder is so goddamn sexy that you will be unable to withhold your desires and you will end up raping her as a result. So rather than blaming these women as the, for the temptation that they just could not avoid. At least this one book was saying that we need to bounce our eyes away from, from these women, sort of. But the problem- a more mellow than pluck your eyes out, which is what Jesus It's a more Jesus mellow, said. yeah. <laughs> which what I think the heart of it, like, again, you have to read everything in the Bible with context. Like Jesus is saying like, pluck the sin out of your own body. Like dismant the same conversation that we're having where we're saying, what are the things that need to be dismantled mm. in you? Love That's that. what Jesus is saying about pluck this out of your eyes. Yes. Dismantle the misogyny out of you. Dismantle the sexual objectification out of you. Cut it out of you. Do internal surgery. Get that out of you because that is a cancer that is going to destroy you and everybody else around you. But this isn't what this book was saying. This book was saying, bounce your eyes. Don't look at her. So we're going to render women utterly invisible. We're just not going to include them. And this is one thing that I see within, you know, for me being in the Baptist church, this is something that I saw all the time because I'm a former Miss Canada. After I became Miss Canada and I did a lot of speaking in churches, I did the preaching circuit. I did the conferences. I, I spoke pretty much as far as you can go. I rose as high as you can go as a woman speaker in the church, as an Asian woman speaker as well in the church. But I hit this glass ceiling 
because women weren't allowed to preach any further. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we have this whole idea. Women were not brought to the table. The amount of times that I would look at a conference and I'd see all white men as the conference speakers. And I'd sit there and being like, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be me, but where are the women? Where are the people of color? There's no people of color speaking at any of your breakout sessions, speaking on any of your platforms, speaking at any of your main stage events, none of them. You don't have a single person from a different ethnic group that can teach you about this. And like, look, the amount of times that I get so much depth and different perspective when I listen to an indigenous preacher preach about Jesus, an indigenous man. Mm. What can a transgender person teach us about our God who transcends gender in a way that only a transgender person can? Mm. What can a woman teach us about Jesus's body being poured out, being bled out for us, poured out for us, this sacrifice, like this is my body broken and poured out for you. You and I are both mothers. My body knows what it's like to be broken and poured out. My womb knows what it's like to be broken and poured out so that humanity can exist every single month. There is so much richness and beauty that we are missing when we're only listening to one voice. And I see this problem in the church. And this is this, this culture that then breeds the racism, the misogyny. It's this Christian supremacy. It's this white supremacy. It's this white nationalism, which interestingly, I've, I've heard people now stepping away from white supremacy. They don't want to own white supremacy, but people will proudly say, no, I'm a white nationalist. And you're like, really? Okay. Like we don't see a problem with that. That's we don't like the see office. A with that. Yeah. The picture, the meme from the office where it's like, what's the difference between these two pictures? <laughs> yeah. Like, like it's, it's the, the same, same picture, same thing. White. Yeah. Christian nationalism is racism is right. and yeah. and how do we get that right we only have our leaders looking a certain way and speaking from one perspective and if you do have any like most of our churches are like white churches they're still very segregated in our churches there's white churches there's black churches there's asian churches and if you have any like cross-cultural interaction a lot of the time it's because you're going to another country to like build wells build homes, a bunch of youth group kids who are 15 years old think that they're completely qualified to build homes for people in a third world country that is third world because of colonization. (laughs) I was one of those kids. Yep. Right. And so we need to have these conversations of the, these, these conversations in the intersections of how does this happen? How does it happen that a good Christian boy who is the son of a Baptist pastor walk into a massage parlor and open fire on a bunch of women, open fire, which and witnesses allegedly say that he, as he opened fire, he said he wanted to kill all Asians. And he opens fire on these human lives because according to the police report, he saw them as a temptation that he wanted to eliminate. Because mm-hmm. he has grown up see, with a superior complex because he's only listened to white leaders and he has 
told been told his whole life that sex is bad sexuality is bad with except within this one certain context and in any other capacity you need to shut it down and then you start to have this like shameful self-loathing cycle that you're pulling yourself into he himself the shooter the murderer apparently had frequented these businesses so this the shame cycle is even deeper because he has done these things that we treat within the church that like these sexual sins are way 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 up here like we treat them as as way high on this like apparent sin hierarchy scale which doesn't exist mm-hmm. and so he's wanting that to stop he just wants it to stop but we see women as disposable. We've been taught to see them as invisible. And he thought it was more righteous to kill them in order to save his and reclaim his purity than face the misogyny and the racism and the harm that purity culture does in the first place. He thought it was more righteous and holy to eliminate the temptation for his sin. Let me ask you, I don't know if you've done research on this very much, but the thing that's going to piss me off that I'm waiting to see is for every church to then double down and say, this yeah. is a pornography problem and this yeah. is a sex addiction problem. That's exactly what I'm, I'm already starting to hear. Right. So I did a poll on God is Gray and I just asked people if they've seen the rampant overuse of this completely like false diagnosis based in nothing um, of men having sexual addiction or porn right. addiction in church. Right. And it right. ended up being like 97% or of people right. said yes. And I know from my experience that the reason is because it's more like compulsory behavior mm-hmm. because it, everything is a sin. So when I talk to someone who says they suffer from quote porn addiction, you'll find out that it's actually their compulsive desire to look Mm -hmm. at porn and then they'll look at it once a month or once a week. And it's like, that is not a porn addiction. So could you explain from your perspective why and how this whole narrative narrative is going to be hijacked away from misogyny and toxic church culture and Mm -hmm. into blaming again, the sex industry, putting it back again on women and people of color for his murder of them. His murder of them. Yeah, because it's our fault that we get murdered. Yes. That makes a lot of sense, right? And so, um, yeah, so, so here's some context for yourself and your listeners. I'm currently studying at the Institute for the Study of Somatic Sex Education, um, which is amazing and so fantastic. Mm. It's like whole person sex education, and I love it so much. It's very transformed. It's very embodied. It's fantastic. Sex addiction from a clinical standpoint does not exist. People have tried to get it um, – put in as a, as a clinical disorder, it gets thrown out every single time because it doesn't exist. Maybe you're just into something that other people aren't into. And if it's done ethically and ethically means with consent so that it's not coerced consent so that you have the freedom to say no, that it's ethical, right? That that's fine. People are into what they're into. That they, people have kinks and they have fetishes. And if it's not doing harm and it's in a consensual way that is ethical, 
it's fine. And people have varying degrees of libido. And usually, usually, if you're looking at from the clinical research, usually that's what they mean when they're saying, oh, this person is a sex addict, is they just have a very high libido, which is fine. And this, to me, as somebody who is a sex positive Christian, I'm sitting here looking at this saying, this is why we need comprehensive sex education that is fact-based, that is inclusive, that is empowering, and that is accessible for people. Because people are sitting here over here being like, oh, I'm such a terrible human being. I'm twisted and I'm dark. And they have these like self-loathings. Okay, so you're kinky. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Do it in an ethical way. I'm kinky too. I'm just ethical about it, right? Like that's fine. Integrate these things about yourself. This is why we need this accessible education for people. This is why we need to look at at the intersections of spirituality and sexuality and allow you to come back home to your body in a way that dispels shame, in a way that embraces liberation and the wholeness of your humanity. And I really think that like where purity culture has gone wrong and where I fear that people are going to double down on this in the church is they are going to double down into purity culture. They are going to, to see like sex and sexuality as bad rather than saying, like, look, this is a part of who you are. And I'm so convinced that this is a part of who we are because we look at our own anatomy. The clitoris exists. Yeah. If the clitoris exists for no other purpose but pleasure, God thought that pleasure was a good idea. Amen. Right. And if mm-hmm. women were like the la- one of the last things, the last thing that we believe, according to the creation story, um, if women were, the- if Eve was the last thing that God created, she is like the, the climax of creation. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> she that. She is the climax of creation. <laughs> and she was not complete without the clitoris. Mm right? And so this is a good thing. This is an important thing. But as with all things, ethics matter. And this is what I see when we talk about um, fleeing from sexual immorality. I've, I've done research. I've been studying theology from an academic perspective for a decade. And I've looked into this, like, what are we actually saying when we're talking about sexual immorality? We're not saying that sex outside of marriage is sexual immorality. We're not saying that. When we look at the scriptures, every time, like, it doesn't very clearly, quite honestly, define what sexual immorality is, but it does list these certain things that often come right after they say sexual immorality. They say incense, they say bestiality, they say pedophilia, they say uh, gang rape things like that. And so I'm looking at all these and I'm looking at where's the common thread here. The common thread is that it's a violation of consent. That is sexual immorality. It is a violation of consent. It is a dehumanization of that person's inherent humanity. That is what sexual immorality is. And that's the conversation that I deeply wish our churches were having. Because if we were having that conversation, our culture would be completely different within the church. But we're not having that conversation because it doesn't fit with the dominant political narrative the church is prescribed to. And in order to do that, we have to look at the fact that like there is a political agenda within the church. There is a, a, a reason for power and control because we're trying 
kind of funnel people into one dominant theology for the most of the time. Of course, there's variations in theology. That's how we come up with so many different denominations because everything is an interpretation of scripture, right? But if it doesn't fit with that interpretation of scripture that these churches hold, they're not going to explore these things. And it's, it's devastatingly harmful when mm-hmm. we don't. Because sexual immorality, and I'll say it again for all of everyone in the audience, because I need you to hear this. Sexual immorality does not just mean sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality means anything that violates a person's humanity, that violates their consent, that sees them not as as someone that is made in the image of God, but strips them of their imago Dei and turns them into a sex object or something for you to just dominate, control, get profit or pleasure from, anything that strips them from their humanity, that is sexual immorality. And that includes animals too, which is pretty mind-blowing. Right. I don't think animals should be dismissed as non-spiritual beings as right. they have been forever. Right. Yeah. Bestiality, it's included in that. Pedophilia, it's included in that. Right. And and so, yeah, it's just, it's deeply frustrating to me when the answer just seems so incredibly clear. I know. And this is who I know God to be. Mm-hmm. This is who I know Jesus. More importantly, if Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, if, if, if not, Christianity does not have any other pillars except for Jesus, you take Jesus away. What are we doing? What are we even doing here? Like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Right. And I see the, the way that Jesus lived out his life on earth. And it was always looking at the dignity and the humanity of other people mm-hmm. and bringing people who had been pushed aside by the political agenda back into the fold, pushed aside by religious people who were following the rules good Christian people, not actually Christians didn't exist at Jesus's time, (laughs) but you know what I mean, right? The equivalent of the first century Palestinian equivalent of good Christian people that were pushing everybody else to the margins. Mm -hmm. So this is why this is a really hard conversation for us in the church to have, but we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at the way that we have at best been complicit in racism, misogyny, purity culture, and the dehumanization of other people, and at worst, the way that we have upheld and perpetuated these things. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard conversation to have with ourselves, but we must. Amen. Yeah. Otherwise, what are we doing? Exactly. What are we doing? Might as well. <laughs> Let's save some lives. Right? Um, I am really, really curious to hear about your experience with sex workers as well, because now this brings us to another intersection that you are very familiar with. And I obviously have a very nuanced perspective of it because, again, of ethics and consent and pornography for that reason is very, very tricky for me Mm -hmm. because we don't always know why people are in that situation, if they want to be there, what has led them there. So it gets very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. And then of course, this overarching theme of the majority of mainstream porn, which is violent, aggressive, not at all pleasure-based for a woman. Even, you know, the porn that I've seen, the angle that the dude is going in, I know for a fact doesn't even feel good. And I'm just like, 
And piggybacking off of that idea too, um, Cardi B just posted on her page this like Christian YouTuber who's like crying because her son might be exposed to WAP. And how are we going to teach our children? And I'm like, the answer is so obvious. It's so hard to not bang my head against a wall. What, what you need to do is advocate for comprehensive sex ed. Yeah. The least of your son's problems is going to be exposed from a woman who is advocating for female pleasure. That is well, the least of your son's problems. As a yeah, matter of well, fact, that's well, a good problem a to good, have. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, the science actually shows that women are often um, have higher libidos than men right? Um, if you read Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, like this is, this is revolutionary to a lot of people. And Sunday brunches with my friends show the same statistics. <laughs> right. Likewise, girls nights. Nice. You would Robbie's be surprised. Like, will my boyfriend sleep with me? I need a, we're just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. And again, this, this, this flies in the face of what we had said before about like men are just like raging, like can't control their sexuality and their sex drives. And, and yet, you know, I'm a, I'm a bisexual, demisexual, sapiosexual, polyamorous Christian woman. Ooh. And, and I know, I, I know, right. All the intersections again. Um, and, and like, I know so many men who are demisexual who are like, I need to have an emotional connection before somebody, before I feel any kind of sexual arousal. People are just wired differently. And I'm They're the just, opposite. There you go. I'm right? like, you're hot. Let's go. Not you nowadays. Go. But <laughs> and this is why we need comprehensive sex education because people are wired differently. Mm-hmm. I know. Right? And so to, to back to your question, within the context of, um, you know, sex work and how that intersects with sexual exploitation, how that intersects with racism and misogyny and male violence and all of these things, we have to have a nuanced conversation. So I worked 10 years, like I mentioned, um, in ending sexual exploitation, in ending gender-based violence. I worked all across Southeast Asia. I did undercover investigations into Thailand and Cambodia. Um, we went undercover into brothels for a while. I sat with women in aftercare homes. I worked in Parliament, so I looked at it from a legislative perspective. I was the provincial director for a nonprofit. So I've looked at it from all these different angles. And what I find is the common threads is there is a percentage of people who are there by choice. That, c- that cannot be excluded from the conversation. Yeah. At the same time, when we talk about the concept of choice, we do have to talk about all the other factors, right? We do have to talk about the prevalence of racism and sexism. We have to talk about the history of colonization. Like here in Canada, um, Indigenous women have, have been going missing and murdered at an alarming rate. And it's the same in the United States. Like the UN, United Nations has asked Canada to address the problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls on multiple occasions. And a lot of these women end up being missing and murdered because of the sexual violence and the sexual exploitation, the way that Indigenous women are overrepresented in human trafficking statistics. Mm-hmm. So we have to talk about these things at the same time. Yes, there are people there by choice, and yet there are also absolutely people there who are not by their choice. And even choice can be complicated. Like, are you there because the choice, and I saw this a lot in Asia, I do see this here as well, but are you there because the choice is between not providing for your children and then just putting a a brave face on and smiling when you are there with a client that you maybe wouldn't have actually chosen for yourself, but you have to do it because you have bills to pay and you have children to provide for and you're trying to be a good mother, right? 
Is, is that truly consent? Is that truly a choice? Or maybe as a society, we need to address the fact of like, why can't single mothers provide for their children? Why don't we have a living viable working wage? Why do we not have safe and affordable housing? Why do we not have health care? Why is it so damn hard to get education? Like, can we talk about these? Can we talk about the gender pay gap? Are we talking about racism? Are we talking about fetishization of Asian women? Are we talking about the way that men withhold promotions for women unless they sleep with them? Are we talking about the, the way that like, oh, it's all who you know. And so if you want to break the glass ceiling, it's so much easier to be an underqualified man than maybe a woman who's overqualified for a role, but is just getting passed up because she didn't go golfing with the boys on the weekend. Right? So like, are we having those conversations? Because those are all absolutely contributing factors here. I'm in love with you. Preach. <laughs> and I really quickly wanted to address too the I've heard the wage gap argument of like, yeah. well, that's because women are choosing jobs that get, you know, have less pay. And I'm just like, yes, but even why is that? Why so are why these are, jobs why undervalued are, in society? Absolutely. Why are female dominated industries making less than male dominated industries? And even in coronavirus as well, like people are acting oh. like these entry level jobs, these people, they've been called entry level jobs. And it's like, no, no, let's just call them jobs because jobs. that is what people need to do to earn a living. Right. And they should be respected as such. But of course, the legislation didn't pass to pay them a living wage. So here right. we are. Well, and what I think is interesting as you're adding this layer of coronavirus in, when we're talking about these like gender imbalances as well too, the people who are essential a lot of the time were, were workers who are in the intersections of race and social class and gender and definitely not CEOs and professionals who work in workplaces that are able to just like work from home over Zoom. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they have to subject themselves to potential danger from this virus that a year ago we knew nothing about. Without but they had healthcare. to keep going without mm -hmm. healthcare. I mean, I do live in Canada, so we like healthcare is a little bit more accessible than us. I know you guys are like right? a utopia in my opinion. Right? <laughs> Come on over girl when the border opens up again. You Send me know. someone to marry. I'll do it. I'm ready for the citizenship. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, but this is still a problem everywhere. And then even the fact, like, I worked for a while with this organization called Elturage that is working to advance women in the workplace. And when we met with major banks and, and corporations and credit unions, they were saying most of the time that the problem wasn't finding incredible qualified female candidates. They could find that because their women have so much that they have to bring to the table. The problem was retaining incredible female talent because if somebody in the family got sick at home, she would be the one who was expected to go home and take care of that sick child. She was the one who was expected to, and I mean like chronic illness. I, I'm not meaning just like, oh, the kids got called home from school because although still moms are usually the ones who are called for that. Um, but I'm meaning like so much so that she has to end her career that she was doing, that she was excelling at and that they needed her for because great grandmother is now needing to be taken care of at home every day because the child is sick and has cerebral palsy and needs a family member to care for them all the time, right? And so when we, when I was sitting in these meetings, in these board meetings, with with banks and and corporations and they were sitting here saying like no we can find qualified women candidates that's not a problem the problem is actually keeping them because they get midway into their career and something happens domestically at home and they get pulled out because women are still not equal at home mm -hmm. and a lot of these ideas come from people within the church 
who still view men as the head of the home. Like there was a conversation in um, a Christian feminist Facebook group that I was listening in on recently. And she was saying, she was talking about this idea of being unequally yoked. And she was like, can I date? Like I've, I've had this relationship for four months now with my non-Christian boyfriend. It is the healthiest, most respectful, like best communicative relationship I've ever been in. But I'm still feeling this guilt from purity culture saying that like, I'll be unequally yoked with him. And I told her, I, I decided to comment on it. And I said like, from my own personal perspective and, and take it with a grain of salt, this is my lived experience. My, my perspective might be different than yours, but what I have found from my experience is that I've never been more disrespected than when I dated a Christian man. Tell me why. That did not treat me as an equal. That right. did not understand the way that he perpetuated sexual violence, that he came to me and coerced me. as like, when I said, no, I'm not feeling it, they would keep like keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it until I was like, okay, fine, I'll sleep with you. Or okay, fine, I'll, I'll do this with you, whatever, just to get you off my back. Because you're not listening when I'm saying no. Because in the church, you've been taught that you were entitled to it and that we just have to take one for the team or because maybe with every rom-com that you've ever watched, the man is pursuing air quotes the woman and she is saying, no, she's not interested and you just won't take no for an answer and you think that's charming and cute, right? And so we perpetuated these ideas. I've never felt more unsafe than with Christian men most of the time. And then when I date non-Christian men, surprisingly, they understand ethics. They understand consent. They know how to see me as a whole person. Yep. Whereas people within the church don't. Because what we see for representation with when women in the church is that men preach on pulpits on Sunday morning and they serve by serving communion and these leadership roles and women serve by serving coffee and tea. Mm-hmm. And I'll keep calling out Lisa Bevere until she finally freaking mm. addresses this, but she recently put out um, an e, uh, purity ebook. And yeah. I reference it in my book on her knees because it's worthy. It's like kind of just the most recent perpetuation in a mainstream way that I've seen mm-hmm. this from a woman who mm-hmm. you would think would be our advocate, but this is the right. opposite. Um, I don't know the exact quote, but it is essentially why would a man want to know more thoroughly what he's already known too quickly? This Mm. is a mother of X number of sons. She's sons. So I'm like, I wonder what your sons are out there up to because do you not hear what you are saying? You are telling them women are less valuable if they're willing to be sexually available to -hmm. your sons, to the men in the congregation. You're telling women, if you are sexually valuable or available, you are less valuable Mm -hmm. inherently. You've, and then she talks about being less complete. You're not complete when you've lost pieces of yourself. You all listen, this is real. This is recent. It's real. This is like a year ago post. I know. And it keeps going over and over. And also too, how many women's blogs have I read in Christian circles where it's like, if you are postpartum, if your body is healing Mm. and you can't be available for your husband's needs, which you're required to give him from Ephesians 5.22, then a blowjob is a good thing. Why don't you do an HJ instead? It's like- Mm bitch, why don't you take a nap and sit down because you just had a baby? And why don't you tell this man he doesn't have yeah. quote needs yeah. he can control himself and also pair that with not allowed to masturbate. So I was just going to say, and there's nothing wrong with <laughs> self 
pleasure. And Amen. there's nothing wrong with toys. Like, do you want me to go buy you a pocket pussy? Because I happily <laughs> will. I've got three drawers in my chest of sex toys for me. And I have zero shame about it because God made my clitoris. And Amen. it is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten to know my body more by self-pleasure so that I can then advocate for myself more and say, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. And guess what? That brings more unity and intimacy and connection with my partners. Yes, absolutely. Which is what we're preaching and saying that sex is for. Right. But we're not giving people the tools to be able to actually meet somebody else in that intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're not seeing one another. This goes back to the same problem from a very like extreme point of what happened in Atlanta. We're not seeing people as whole people. And that's the problem here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So let's now address the racist elements of it because you and I just both went on this raging (laughs) uh, tangent of purity culture and what is happening right now, 2021 in some, it's Sunday. I'm sure it's happening (laughs) in thousands of churches right fricking now. Like the pastor that you referenced earlier, that was Ephesians 5.22. This is what the hell we're talking about. They're preaching about this morning. Yeah. So this kid, you know, I don't know anything about him, but presumably not allowed to touch himself. I mean, you know, the Baptist tradition, I'm evangelical. They're very akin, not allowed to touch himself, uh, sees any view of pornography as quote addiction, sees Mm -hmm. his libido as original sin. Mm -hmm. Um, It's chastising himself constantly, can't help the temptation of Mm -hmm. going to these massage parlors. Mm -hmm. So now of course you have what I referenced earlier in the conversation where we see when we cross-checked men who had Yelp reviews for these massage parlors that had racist sentiments in them explicitly, like, I don't want a black girl because she was too rough on me. You need an Asian girl because they're softer. They know Mm -hmm. how to do this better. And then those same men were saying, I love this church on a different Yelp page. I'm a good Christian man. So this is what we're talking about. But this is now the element of racism, which I cannot speak to. I obviously have lived experiences too. Like how often in my white ignorance have we sat around and been like, has anyone ever been with a black guy? Has everyone ever fucked an Asian dude? And we have that kind of conversation. Again, going to show as much as we might want to live in a post-racial society, we do not. So yeah, speak to me from your perspective on that. Well, the first thing I'd say is you do have a voice to speak into this conversation, but it's different than mine. Your voice is to call out other people from your community and say, this shit's not okay. Yeah. Because it's exhausting when we have to do that all day long. Mm -hmm. And we're being dismissed from the beginning because people don't see us as fully human. Right. And so maybe they'll listen to you in a way that they won't listen to me. And that is another takeaway that I really would love. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to highlight it because I would love all of your listeners to really take this to heart. Speak up when you're seeing these things. If you're seeing somebody aggressively come towards, and even if it's a microaggression, if you're seeing harm being perpetuated on a person of color, in front of you, in your workplace, in Walmart, at the grocery store, to the barista, or even in the comment section online, step in and call them out. 
Call out your own community. That's what it means to be a good Christian person. That's what it means to be a nice person. Don't, don't give me this like nice guy entitlement because I gave her a couple compliments and now I'm entitled to sex. Be a nice guy because you care whether we live or die and whether we get home at night. Mm-hmm. Be a nice guy who stands in between us and the oppressor, not the nice guy who treats us like a vending machine that says, I gave her three compliments and I called her beautiful. Now give me a blowjob and let's have sex at the end of our date. That's not a nice guy. That's yeah. just masquerading misogyny again. Right? And that's, so, that's the sermons I hear so many times too. Men, right. why don't you do the dishes and yes. then she'll have sex with you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just had to say that. So going back into the conversation of uh, racism and how this intersects with people that are in the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back again to when I was working in Southeast Asia and when I worked in, in this issue here across Canada and the United States as well, because I worked all across North America on this. And when we saw, especially it was, it was very over the top when we were in Southeast Asia, because men just have the audacity to think that their white skin, their passport, and their full wallet of cash allows them absolute impunity. And so here, I would find that like, if a man is being intimidating, and he is if he's catcalling, or if he's doing something that is racist or misogynist, if I look him in the eye long enough, he'll get uncomfortable, and he'll he'll walk away or he'll look away. But in Southeast Asia, if I were to look a white man in the eyes, he would not back down. And the experience that I felt as um, uh, I'm biracial, but as as an Asian woman in these places where we wired me up with cameras and I was sent in as the bait when we worked undercover. So I, I was like, the way that these men who come from our good Christian churches, who spend their yearly vacation in Southeast Asia because they feel like they do not get the respect from American women at home. So they go to places like Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Laos, Malaysia. They go to, to my, my ancestral countries and they, they buy women, they abuse women, And they say that they do that there because Asian women have this stereotype and fetishization of being submissive, of being sweet, of being demure, of being eager to please, and of being hypersexualized with beautiful, small, petite Asian bodies and tight little pussies, tight little vaginas, because that is the stereotype. They go there for that because they think that women in America are too opinionated, too loud, and they don't respect them because we are calling them on the consequences of their racist and misogynist behavior because women here are calling them out on their actions. So they go somewhere else in order to perpetuate this harm where their dollar and their white privilege of their passports allows them to buy these women to purchase their bodies and to rape them for profit. I know that it sounds incredibly vulgar to put it in that those terms, but let's not sugarcoat it. That's exactly what it is. We watched men just drape their arms possessively over these Asian women, sometimes twice their age or twice their size. And these women have no other option but to smile and just take the abuse. And when men are doing that there and men are doing that here as well too, because they think that they can get away with it. And most of the time, because of the culture that we're raised in, they can. That's why they have no fear doing their Yelp review to the massage parlor, objectifying a woman's body 
And also reviewing a church down the road. They Mm -hmm. have no problem putting their full face and their full name on that because this is the culture that we live in and there's no consequences for them. And this is why we need to all be part of changing this narrative. Yeah. Can you explain to me your choice to use the word rape there? Because if they're paying for the service, why are we using the word rape? Because it's not consensual. Because it's like a forced scenario. Right. 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 And again, there are sometimes women who are, who are in working in sex work by choice, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the ones who have the choice. I'm not talking about the ones who can walk away if they, if they've been raped, if they've suffered violence. I'm not the ones who talking about the ones who have relationships with their clients who get to choose their clients. I'm talking about the ones who don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And even, even if people are there by choice, I still don't want them to be raped. I still don't want them to suffer violence. I still don't want them to deal with male violence in, in any capacity. So yeah. I still want to stand up for them because their lives have just as much value. Of course. And the only reason I asked for that clarification is it's because it does seem to be, I know how to, but in conversation with mm. others, it seems like a hard line to draw to be like, when is sex worth? ethical you know so you're using the word rape in this scenario but then we're also advocating for people to have the choice to become sex Mm. workers Mm -hmm. so how do you I mean obviously we've talked about ethics and everything but do you have anything else to add as far as a male person Mm -hmm. who maybe this is in his tradition this is something that he's done maybe he has been attending a lot of these massage parlors I know men in my life who have done this or actually have a habit of it and in some ways it seems like this seemingly harmless thing it's like Mm -hmm. part of the massage and you know it doesn't feel like an abusive exchange in any way so how can someone clarify when they're doing something ethical or not what Mm -hmm. because I don't want people to fall into greater shame spirals no or vilify sex work in any way further totally and I think if you understand consent truly It's quite simple, honestly. And this is why we need comprehensive sex-based education. Mm -hmm. Comprehensive education to understand consent. People might sit there and say, oh, well, she said yes. Did she say yes because you wouldn't stop asking for it? Did she say yes just because she didn't say no? Mm -hmm. Did she say yes because she had to, to survive another day? Because she had no other options? Did she say yes because she was in a safe, a place that she didn't feel safe enough emotionally or physically to say no? Did she say yes, but we have plays of, uh, of classism, of, of uh, racism, of, you know, like, what, what is the context of this? Is she a small, young Asian woman and you are a white big privileged man is your body three times the size of her and she doesn't feel safe enough to say no because that's not consent then Mm -hmm. right and this is the same in any context this is same in your bedroom this is the same in 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 sex work and anything else consent is the same across the board right it's not ethical unless you talk about all these layers yeah Something I also brought up in my posting about these murders in Atlanta Mm. was that 
I was sexually assaulted, which is something that I didn't even recognize as Mm. real until the Me Too movement because I hadn't verbalized a no, which is why I'm so obsessed and in love with the term enthusiastic consent. But also I wrote about it in my book. And when I was reliving the experience, which was terrible, I was like, if he knew the practice of embodiment, if he knew how to look someone in the eye, if he didn't, this was someone who was privileged with wealth who had um, bought me a hotel and like treated me on a vacation Mm -hmm. and let himself into my room Mm -hmm. because he obviously felt that he was privileged and had a right to my body because he paid for these things. Paid for the room, yes. Even Mm -hmm. though I explicitly had said beforehand that that was never going to be a part of the arrangement. Mm -hmm. And this, I mean, I have a bazillion stories just living in my body in LA in these situations. Anyway, I look back at that and I'm just like, don't pretend you don't know when a woman doesn't want this. Don't right. pretend that you're yeah. a white man in Cambodia with your arms slung over a 15-year-old yeah. girl yeah. and pretend you're doing something ethical. What is her body saying to you? What is mm-hmm. her body language? Mm-hmm. Is she in pleasure? Is mm-hmm. she in joy? Stop mm-hmm. playing dumb. You are not mm-hmm. dumb. You're yeah. not dumb. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is one of the big things that I work with with my clients as an embodiment coach a lot of the time is coming back into our bodies, into relationship with our bodies, learning to listen to our bodies. And so what I mean by that, just to walk you through that process is think about this moment when you met someone or something and you just like knew this was for you. This was going to be good for you. Like, this is somebody that like, maybe this is somebody who I could love. Like, maybe this could be the one, <laughs> you know, that feeling in your yeah. body when it's like every bit of every cell of your body is alive. You're like, this is good. Now contrast that feeling that you have that you can feel right now in your body, that memory in your mind, in your body, contrast that feeling with that feeling when something came towards you, something came across your desk, something came into your life and you're like, logically on paper this is checking every box this should be good but there's just something unexplainable in your gut you can feel it in your stomach you feel it in every bit of your body you can't put your finger on it but your body is saying like no walk away this is not for you this is not right this is not good no it might look amazing on paper everybody might be saying this is an amazing opportunity but you just can't even explain it but there's something that's just not right there's something off about it do you know that feeling yes That's your body speaking to you and warning you. That's your body. Your body speaks to you. Your body speaks to you. And most of us spend all day long, especially people who are like very intellectual, very fact-based, very cerebral, will sit around and we, all of us, doesn't matter who you are, even if you're not a research nerd like you and I both are, (laughs) we'll we'll sit there and we exist up in our minds all day long. Mm Mm-hmm. We're living in our heads all day long. We need to get out of our heads. We need to get into our body. And for those of us within the church, this is so incredibly important. I'm actually writing a book right now about embodiment, justice, and reclamation. And one of the things that I'm spending a lot of time exploring is the history of disembodiment in the church. You know, we talk, there's verses about Paul saying he pummels his body, right? There's, there's a long history of monks who would whip their own bodies to try to, to, to get their fleshy desires out of who they are, to separate them from their humanity. And yet when we see the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus did not shy away from his humanity. Mm. He leaned in 
to his humanity. And so the very thesis of the work that I do and the book that I'm writing is that maybe your body is not the place that you have to, to shut down in order to meet God. Maybe your body is actually the altar where you meet God. Maybe your body is a place where you meet God and goodness. And maybe if the shooter knew this, he would not have gone and taken the lives of these other Asian women. Beautiful. I completely agree. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to leave us with? I'm going to leave you with the same one that I started with. Be brave enough to sit in the discomfort. Be brave enough to, and humble enough, posture yourself with a, a posture of humility. I think this is why the Bible says, like, what does God just require of us? To act justly, to walk humbly, to love mercy. We sit here and we create this, like, hierarchy of rules. And, this, and it, it creates the web of the culture that we exist within, that is swirling all around us. The only thing that God asks us to do is love God and love others, to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. So, so come to this conversation. And you have, if you've listened to this already, and you've listened to this conversation to the end of it. And thank you so much, deeply, from the bottom of my heart for giving us the time to sit and listen to the fullness of this conversation that we've just had. And to do so with an open heart and mind, with a posture of humility, to see me in the fullness of my humanity, to see one another in the fullness of our humanity. That's where things change. That's what Jesus did when he would sit with people that everybody else in the world dismissed because of race, class, gender, sexuality, identity, all of these things. He sat with and saw us in the fullness of our humanity. He was willing to call out the things that did us harm. He flipped tables because people were being exploited. He flipped tables because people were being harmed. He had no problem looking us in the eye and calling us out when the crowd came to stone someone. We need to do the same. We need to be willing to have those hard conversations within the church, within North America, at how we have perpetuated racism, of how we have perpetuated misogyny, of how we have perpetuated classism, of how we have marginalized people, how we have bounced our eyes away from them so that we don't even see their humanity anymore, so that they are invisible to us, so that we've treated people as sex objects and we have fetishized them and we have used their bodies, their holy bodies for our own personal profit, pleasure, or gain. There's a reckoning that needs to happen within the church. But I'm not saying we need to do that necessarily with a wrecking ball. I still have love for the people within the church because I so I take my faith seriously. I take what Jesus says seriously, but we do have a lot of dismantling to do. It is a whole reno job that needs to be done within the church. And we need to come that owning it. We need to come to that owning where we have done harm, not excusing it and doubling down in purity culture now and saying that is the problem. No, we are the problem. And until that happens, people are going to continue to die and the church is going to continue to be accountable for it. And that is hard to hear, but it is the truth. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tara. I really appreciate you being here with us. 
how can everyone find you? I will link everything below, but just let us know. Yeah, so you can find me across the board. Um, my handle is at Miss Tara Tang, M-I-S-S-T-A-R-A-T-E-N-G. You can find me through my website, taratang.com. Um, I do offer one-on-one coaching if these are things that you're like, shit, I need to work through this. And I, <laughs> and I need support in a non-judgmental way. We never approach things with judgment. You might hear passion in my voice today because I I care deeply about people's lives, but I'm not coming out with judgment. I come at these things and I've uncovered all of these layers with curiosity and then with a passion to do something about it. And if you are hungry and desperate for change as well too, that's something that we can walk through together. We can walk through that together because it is only with kinship that we see each other through the fullness of our humanity and that we are able to bring change into one another's lives. And I truly believe that Jesus didn't just come here to save my life. He didn't just come here to save your life. I believe that Jesus is big enough to change, transform all of it, that Jesus came to, to, to transform every broken thing in the world. So let's actually live like we believe that. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you all so much for being here. We love you so much. God bless.